The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So just imagine you're desperate to find new people. Maybe you don't even have to imagine it. Maybe you are one of those people who have to hire someone regularly. You're a small business owner or a manager inside a large organisation who has to think about how can I find someone to fill that role? And for the last three or four years, particularly the last year, that has been a headache for everyone. Where can I find people to fill those jobs? How come I can't find any? Why won't they open up the migration taps? Why can't I just bring someone in from overseas? And for a lot of people, they, the, the initial instinct is to go, well, let's widen the pool of potential applicants around the world. But maybe there's another way. This week on When the Facts Change, we look at opening up a pool of applicants within Aotearoa. Because you might be surprised that there is a group of people, many of whom are talented and educated, who only 20 to 30% of them actually have jobs. That is the autistic community in New Zealand. And it's a growing community because we have a larger number of people who are being diagnosed as, as autistic. And it is an opportunity for many businesses to find people who not only are very skilled, but actually often have so-called lower churn rates, i.e. they're less likely to leave once you've got them. And in preparation for this podcast, I, I did some calculating on how much it costs to have a high churn rate, but also how much it costs to recruit someone on average it costs around about $60,000 to recruit a new person for a median salaried role. And if you're in an organization which might have five to 10 people a year who are leaving, that's a half a million dollars in cost. Just imagine if when you were hiring people, you had a, a wider group of people that you could hire from. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Dane Dugan, who is the CEO of Autism New Zealand, and who's been doing a lot of work with businesses and organisations to reform their hiring processes, their screening processes, and also their onboarding processes. So what do you need to do when you bring someone in? Can you change their environment so that they're more comfortable? Can you change your job description so they're much, much clearer and easier to not just understand, but to follow. And that's an advantage that goes right across your workforce, not just for people uh, on the autism spectrum. And, and then once you've got those people in, ensuring that you keep them. Because remember that churn is the enemy of a business post-COVID. Losing people is so much more expensive than simply spending the money to get extra people. And this is a, a pool of people, hundreds of thousands, who are out there looking for work. 
As we discover when we talk to Dane, there are lots of new techniques, new ways to open the funnel, to welcome in a larger group of people. But there are some particular issues, and one of which is our old favourite, housing, which Autism New Zealand is working on to try to solve, to find places for uh, people to live uh, where they have the proper support and can connect up to employers. Because, of course, once you have a job and an income coming in, which is usually much, much more than, than your income from support from MSD, uh, then that opens up the prospect of being able to save some money and also uh, save some financial resources for later on. And it's not just the you know the charitable organisations who are looking to employ people who have been diagnosed with autism. It's a fantastic case last year where police, NZ Police, decided to dedicate three fixed-term positions to people with autism. And this is in its financial crime hunting and prosecution division, people who were able to work in a very closely prescribed way to you know, hunt down and research information looking for financial criminals. So one research analyst and two data analysts were uh, created jobs that NZ Police created, and they worked with Autism New Zealand to fill those positions with uh, autistic people. And it has worked to uh, not just widen the group of people working in police, but obviously um, find some people who are absolutely excellent at hunting down financial criminals. And uh, it's worked very well. But it's not just New Zealand Police. When you consider um, that all around the world, some of the biggest companies like Microsoft, SAP, Ernst & Young, have dedicated global HR programs for finding people with autistic spectrum disorder or people who are on the spectrum, finding those people and employing them. Not only because um, it's a good thing to do, but it's actually a profitable thing to do when you can lower your hiring costs, lower your churn costs, and improve the diversity of your organisation, which various studies have shown have improved both profitability and the well-being of those people in your organisation. Particularly now, uh, post-COVID, when working from home is more of an option for many businesses, which, as Dane tells us, is going to help further widen the pool of potential candidates to solve what is one of our biggest problems at the moment, uh, staff shortages. Not just shortages of actual bodies to do the work, but of certain skills, particular types of skills, which uh, many people struggle to find, but which are there and are not being utilised. One of the great challenges in economics is matching people with tasks, making sure that you're at full employment. There's a lot of talk about full employment at the moment with the Reserve Bank saying we just can't take it anymore. There's too much stress in the economy that's pushing up prices and inflation. But are we really at full employment when we have tens of thousands of people who are talented and skilled, could do the work, but if we were able to change recruitment processes, we could increase, in effect, the potential scale of our employment. And it's worth looking at this week on When the Facts Change during Autism Awareness Week, where we try to 
focus on the issue of connecting up people with great skills and enthusiasm in the autistic community with jobs, and in particular the need that many employers have to find people. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Dane Dugan, the CEO of Autism New Zealand. Dane, welcome to When the Facts Change. Great to see you. Thank you very much for having me, Bernard, and um, we're very excited to be able to talk about these very important topics, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, the area of work and uh, housing for people with autism is... uh, increasingly important, not just because we have labour shortages and huge opportunities to bring more people into the workforce in a way that works for everyone, but also housing shortage, which uh, often stresses those who are most at the fringes in our society. But firstly, on employment, um, what sort of uh, scale of an issue do we have with people who are um, either diagnosed or have autism uh, uh, in terms of can't get work, uh, bounce in and out of work, have poor quality work? So essentially with our autistic community, they're about three to four times more likely to be unemployed than the general disabled population, not only just the general population. So it's a massive issue, and a lot of what we work on with Autism New Zealand is how do we create an environment that's going to be a, that'll be successful not only for the autistic individual, but also for the workplace. And there's very strong evidence out there now that shows if you get the environment right for the autistic person, it's going to have a massive benefit to your organisation in many different areas, not just in areas you'd think, because one of the key parts is making sure that when you communicate with our community, you make that communication as clear as possible. And we've had some feedback with some organisations that we're working on that that's improved communication across the board because now that communication is far clearer for everyone, not just our autistic guys and girls who are there. So um, we we really appreciate it when people come to us and say that they want to give back and they really want to look to employ our community. And we say, that's awesome. You know, we really appreciate that. And if you want to give back, we're more than comfortable to take any large donations because we are a charity at the end of the day. But if you employ an autistic person, it's got to benefit your organisation as much as, as, as it will benefit that person. And, and we focus a lot on that. It's not a charity. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, it's interesting that some of the largest uh, companies in the world, um, Microsoft, EY and the likes, have you know proper long-term worldwide policies to try to actively recruit people with uh, autism into their organisations, um, not just from a diversity point of view and that you get lots of benefits from having diverse workforces, but for some particular roles, you actually have much better performance and lower churn rates, if you like. People are, are more um, able, once they've got everything right, to, to stick around. Yeah, you're right. So some, I mean, I, I do want to premise that by saying you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, which is a pretty famous saying. So it's pretty hard for us to generalise to say if you do A and B, you'll get C. It doesn't necessarily work that way. However, there are some traits and some jobs that are really useful for our community. And one thing you just mentioned there, Bernard, is very right. They can be really, really loyal as well. So if you get that environment right for that person, um, you get the job fit right for that person, you could have an employee for a very, very long time who'll be very loyal and do a great job. But even within that sort of framework and within that thinking, um, there are some jobs that our community do far better 
than what the general population can do, and that's looking at things like detail. So um, we're currently doing some work with the police, which has been great, and I'm allowed to talk about it, which is exciting, where we've put in place a whole neuro... So our involvement in this has been quite in-depth and detailed. So our involvement as an Autism New Zealand went right from the start looking at the job descriptions and doing a job analysis, um, putting the job descriptions in plain English right through to setting up a recruitment process that's not... Because recruitment process is one of the biggest uh, speed bumps, I guess, in a process for our community. So we've developed an Autism New Zealand recruitment process based on best practice from around the world um, to, to, to take out those really stressful parts of that process for our community to make it fairer and equitable. Can you give us some examples of what in a normal interview process or a normal recruitment process can become issues and where if you can solve those issues you might actually improve your overall recruitment process for for all sorts of people oh you will and and, you know interviews are pretty stressful for everyone right i mean this is the big one there are others if you if you have a job description there that's not overly clear because a lot of people don't necessarily read the job descriptions once they put it out so it's been the same one forever and you put it in there but half if if you say to somebody in the job description if it was you or i and it says you have to be an expert in Microsoft Excel or something, you and I will just tick that box and say, well, of course we can do Microsoft Excel. Our community can be really, really honest. And if they don't think they're an expert in Microsoft Excel, they might look at that part of that job description and say, actually, I probably can't apply for this because I'm not an expert, and they won't even bother replying. So that's not right. So you're ruling out some pretty, potentially some pretty um, capable people right, right, right off the bat. The interview process in and itself is horrible. So once again, the questions are generally open-ended, and a lot of the times they can be three or four questions linked into one. And an example of that is, can you can you tell me one of, one of your strengths? And if you're an autistic person, you might be sitting there going, okay, well, you know, I'm really good at counting, or I'm really good at walking my dog, or I'm really good at this, I'm really good at that, which have nothing to do with the job. But if you don't define those properly or well enough for our community, the person's not going to come across super well in the interview. So it's not, we're not suggesting every organisation is going to be able to rule out interviews. I understand that's a pretty important part for some people. But what we do recommend to um, organisations if they have to interview is give our community the, the, the questions, even if it's half an hour beforehand, give them the questions beforehand so they know what they're walking into so it creates some certainty. Um, there's another example of where a job description might change a little bit. And, and for you and I, you might think, okay, that small change means nothing. But for an autistic person, it can mean a lot because they don't know whether now they're capable of doing that part of the job. It's things like that. So there's just that part of the process isn't great. And it rules out a lot of our people. And, um, you know, we have some really, really highly qualified people that come through some of our employment programs that have really struggled to even get an interview, let alone get a job. And, you know, it's been heartening because we run to we run a government-funded supported employment program through MSD, which we're really thankful for in Auckland and Wellington. And over the last, I think, about eight to nine years, we've um, empl- we've helped employ about 120 autistic adults into employment, and we're very, 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 and we're very proud of that. And not only does it create a sense of self-worth for that person and gives them a living, but it helps the country no end because there's significant savings in the social system once people start working. That's interesting that a lot of people are screened out even before the interview process. I'm curious about how that's done and uh, and just trying to sit in this in the seat of an employer who may have some preconceived views or some, you know, um, old wives' tales, I suppose you could call them, about um, different types of employment. And, you know, a lot of employers like to employ other people like them because, you know, the the phrase cultural fit uh, (laughs) is is one that's still often used in corporate and business life. Um, Just putting yourself into the shoes of, you know, uh, someone who perhaps hasn't heard about this or, or, or thought about it, 
How are they screening people out and, and what are they missing out on when they do that? Well, I think, as you mentioned before, if you have a diverse workplace, whether that's cultural or, or gender diversity or, or even in our case with the disabled community and specifically the autistic community, there's a whole lot of evidence out there now to show that that workplace is far more successful than those that have the same types of people doing the same types of jobs. So I think straight off the bat, by opening up your mind a little bit and looking a bit wider than what you normally would, you're going to create a far more successful workplace nine times out of ten. So I think that's really, really important to say, number one. Number two, the screening process, once again, there's sort of three things that you really need to have a look at here and things that we get involved in at various different levels. So one is culturally, um, are you actually really interested in creating a diverse workplace or not? Because we don't want to come along to any organisation who's just interested in ticking that diversity box. We don't have an Autism New Zealand employment tick programme or anything like that because I feel like people, although they go into it with the best intent, so don't get me wrong, it's a good start, it's just not what we look to do. What we look to do is come in and say, well, we actually really want to ingrain our community into your organisation. That's where you get the best success, not only for yourself, but for the potential staff that you might be having. So it's not having the autistics in the corner, it's, it's having them in your organisation. So one, culturally, are you ready for that? You really need to have a champion within the organisation, whether it's large or small, but certainly someone who has a bit of um, authority and the ability to say, yes, we really want to do this. Two, and this is the other part I think I want to say, is you have to be able to afford this as well. The upfront cost of employing someone can be a little bit more costly than employing a neurotypical person, just because you've got to get the environment right. You've got to do a little bit of work with the likes of us um, in terms of Autism New Zealand, in terms of the work we do. However, you can mitigate some of that with some of the government support as well. Um, and there's two different types of government support, which I won't get into too much here, but there is a mainstream employment. I think with that, uh, if it's a mainstream employment contract, the government will fund, I think it's 50 to 80% of that person's salary for the first year if you go through a certain process, if you go through the right process. And there's another one, which is like if you, it's not mainstream, um, but it's it, it's it's a it's it's where you talk to MSD and you become with an agreed sort of lump sum amount that will help cover that person's costs. So yes, there might be a little bit more time and effort put up front, but if you get it right, there's some potential funding from government so it can mitigate some of that cost. But thirdly, and finally in this case, you need to keep your job descriptions and your and your and your processes very clear and very black and white. So as I as I mentioned before, if it's not clear, our community won't apply potentially. And if they don't apply, you're potentially missing out on a large pool of people that could do a really good job. And I would suggest to counteract that or, or, or to get around that, it would be to contact potentially us at Autism New Zealand or other supported employment agencies. We, we know we do autism really, really well. But if you're looking at other disabilities as well, then you can look at other organisations too. But if it's autism, definitely get in contact with us. Go to our website, autismnz.org.nz, and we can talk you through all of that as well. And we can talk, we actually have a as I said, in Auckland and Wellington in particular, we've got a wait list already that we've closed. We've got so many people on the wait list that we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So we've closed the wait list. But we've got lots and lots of capable people on our wait list now who are looking for work. What sort of things do people have to do in the workplace to, you know, ensure that someone who stays is feeling comfortable, able to work and sticks around? Because you mentioned the upfront costs, but if you've got a high churn rate, the costs of uh, repeatedly having to hire someone are, are high. So if you get it right first time, your costs lower down down the line might be much lower. So what sort of things do people have to do to uh, to create a good environment to start with? You're you're exactly right. And and firstly, when we go into organisations, um, most of them want to say, "Well, come have a look at the office as it as it looks now and see if this will be appropriate." And we're like, "Look, 
it's not around knocking down walls. It's not around refiguring your whole office to work for our community. We know that, one, that's not realistic, and two, that's not actually the main issue here. The, the main thing that you need to look at is what reasonable accommodations can we make for that person? Even before that, it's about making sure you get the right person for the right job. So even with our supported employment contract, one of the first people we placed was a young lady, a young autistic lady who was really interested in fashion retail. And the good part about this, Bernard, and this, you know, I have to say this, this even challenged our own assumptions a little bit eight or nine years ago because we thought that would be the worst place in the world for an autistic person with lights and sound and people and, and you know, just that endless mall kind of vibe that goes on. I'm just tired thinking about it. but <laughs> I, I, I'm not a big fan of malls person. I try to avoid them as much as I possibly can. But this person really loved fashion retail. So she started there 10 hours a week, I think it was. And to the best of my knowledge, she's still working there now, and it's up to sort of 30, she's up to 30 hours a week. So firstly, that challenged our assumptions as to what, it's not just all going to be in the same IT area, for want of a better term, one of those sort of key generalizations, which um, aren't true, but, you know, is there about our community. There is probably a, le- a little bit of a leaning towards that, but when you look at the people we've put in place, it's been across all different sectors. We've had printer shifts, we've had retail, we've had people that's gone into picking grapes, we've had some people in IT, Absolutely had some people in financial crime, we've had some people in research. So it's across a number of different areas, number one. So the first thing is get the match right. If you get that match right, you could potentially have a really, really loyal employee for a very, very long time. And I'll give you another example of that just quickly. Um, It was was a lady that got diagnosed late in life as autistic, and she had two degrees, three degrees. She's a super, super smart lady. She, She guest lectures still sometimes at Auckland University, and the job that she really wanted and really liked was a part-time filing clerk at Ministry of Ed. And, you know, people would say, well, she's been underutilised, but the reality is that's a job that she wanted. It gave her a sense of self-worth. It gave her a living, and she could go in there and engage with people if she wanted to, but she didn't have to if she didn't want to. And it's a relatively patterned and similar role. So So she knew what she was walking into every day. It's relatively the same type of thing. Now, that won't work for all of our community, but what I wanted to focus on there was just the differences in our community. So don't assume... That if you're getting an if you're getting an autistic person, that it's going to be an IT. That's one of the points I want to make. Get the right match. Secondly, it could be things like where they sit, so or the lighting you've got, or you know if if if, if you've got really bright lights, that could have a really big impact on our community. Our, one of the traits of our community can be that they sense things um, a lot more deeply than we do, for want of a better term. So you know lights, sounds. Um, all that type of stuff. So if you can downplay some of those lights, if you can put them in an area in the office that it's a bit quieter, not by the water cooler, smells, not by the kitchen. So, you know, just where you place them can have a really big impact on whether that's going to work or not. Giving them breaks as well. So giving them regular breaks if they need to. So looking at, okay, well, you know, rather than, a, as most organisations do now anyway, if you, if you need to go out for a 10-minute break and get some fresh air, go out for a 10-minute break and get some fresh air. As long as your job's getting done, it doesn't really matter. So those type of things, it's not around knocking down walls, it's not around putting up separate offices or anything like that, it's just understanding that particular person and what's going to work for them. One other quick example around that was um, I was working with another organisation relatively recently around going, going through that process and they found one person that they really, really liked. But this person, the, the, the sensation of wearing long pants was something that he couldn't handle. So we went in and said, well, you know, is it a customer-facing role? Does it matter if he wears shorts to work every day? Does it matter if he's, you know, does that actually matter or not? And we got there in the end because it didn't matter. It was a back-office role. But if we hadn't got involved in that situation, because that seemed to be an issue for that organisation, he may not have got that job. So it's just opening your mind a little bit to see, actually, are these requirements of the job, actual requirements of the job, 
or are these just generic things that we put in place because that's what we've always done? Little secret, I'm wearing shorts right now. It's one of the reasons I love podcasting. <laughs> the beauty of my job now being chief executive and after COVID was I kind of decided there's no point getting dressed up anymore unless you have to. So it's mostly shorts and jandals for me when it's fine. And I'm loving your hoodie, the, the autism hoodies this week. Thank you very much. If anyone's interested, there's Hoods Up uh, campaign next week. It's for both schools and and organisations, you can buy hoodies off our website or direct you to a, to a separate one, and we get $10 per hoodie, so please feel free to do that. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. And one of the big changes of the last two or three years has been a shift towards working from home for all sorts of businesses, often ones you wouldn't have expected could be done from home. How has that uh, affected the uh, autism community and is it an opportunity? So it's a bit of both, actually, I'd say. So some, And again, it goes back to what I said before, everyone's different, right? And everyone should be treated as an individual. Um some of our community really love coming to work with that social interaction as long as it's not too overwhelming for them. So for us, for some people, not being able to have that routine of going into the office and, 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 and separating out that home from work was, was difficult. But I'd suggest for the bulk, probably working from home worked really, really well because, again, there's that flexibility. If you don't feel like talking to anybody, you don't have to worry about that. You, check, you just chuck your headphones on at home and you're working away, right? And that worked out really, really well for some of our community and – goes back to what I said before, for employers being a little bit flexible around how these roles actually have to be operated because as, you know, pre, um, we were already we were always a pretty flexible organisation anyway because one, we're a charity, two, we have quite a lot of autistic 
um, parents in particular, but also a lot of autistic staff working for us. So we've always created a sense of flexibility around that structure to allow us to be able to employ it. If we can't do it, then we can't expect anyone else to do it. That's always what I thought when I started the job 11 years ago. So we've created an environment now where that happens regularly. And I feel like everyone else has kind of caught up to us now, which is a real positive. So because of that, that creates real opportunities, um, I, th- I think, to look at these jobs and see actually, maybe, well, you know, is this a front-facing job? Could it be done at home? And could we look at differently the type of people we might be looking to employ in these roles? And, and once again, it's not a charity. It will benefit your organisation if you get that right. And I think, Bernard, you would obviously know this more than me, but I think working from home shows a significant amount of benefit for a number of organisations as well, giving people that flexibility and ability to do their job as long as they were still meeting the outcomes of their role. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm loving the new workplace where everyone can wear headphones and as a podcaster, I get to do that all day. So that was good. Yeah, great. I love it too. Yeah. I'm fascinated by housing. Uh, I have this theory that uh, it's, it's that housing theory of everything that m- many of the issues we have in Aotearoa, but actually all around the world, particularly the developed world, are around housing being too expensive, um, not in the right places, not of the right types, not accessible to own uh, or even to rent for a lot of younger people. And it's not just skewing our uh, where we live and how we live, but also how we work, whether we can work in a city uh, and our health and all sorts of other issues, let alone uh, our financial futures uh, if we can't save because we're spending too much on rent or like in New Zealand, um, taking advantage of tax-free <laughs> and leveraged gains in, in equity in houses is one way that people save for their retirements. How is housing affecting uh, the autistic community and particularly younger ones who maybe are looking at jobs or work and also thinking about their financial futures? So when I first started in this job, as I said, it was 11 years ago and I had no link to autism um, at all, so I've learned a lot on the job, obviously, and I still don't ever pretend to be an expert because I'm not. We have others that are far more of experts about autism than I am, particularly our autistic staff as well. But one of the biggest issues when you talk to family, whanau, and still to this day, it's still one of the biggest issues, is what's going to happen to my son, daughter, um, loved one, when I'm not around to care for them anymore or not capable of caring for them anymore. Some people have siblings, and, and they may be willing to do that and wanting to do that, and that's great. But for a bulk of our community, that's a real concern because we know and rates of autism and, di- and, and of autistic of people being diagnosed as autistic are continually going up. Twofold, I think. One is there's far better awareness out there, and that's thanks to a lot of the work we've done and other organisations around creating better awareness. But two, there's definitely a genetic link as well. So a lot of time you go in and get a um, diagnosis of a child, and and then um, a family. You see Uncle Jimmy in the corner. You know he might go in and get diagnosed later. And, and two for one special. Yeah, it's a whole podcast for another day. Yeah, but um, and, and, but that does take out all that vaccine nonsense. Just like yeah, things important to say that the vaccines have absolutely no cause of autism whatsoever. But um, what's going to happen to my loved one when I'm not around anymore? So we've we've been doing a bit, of, and I suggest it probably hasn't got a lot better in the eleven years I've been here, unfortunately. And we also know. That, you know, there's probably about 120,000 people diagnosed as autistic in New Zealand, between 80, 19, 120,000, somewhere around there. We know that only 10% of those are getting disability support services. So there's only 10% that are going to be have, have that ability unless Family Whanau can support them to actually get into that supported living environment. So what we believe would be really good one, it goes back, it's actually very similar to employment in some ways. How do we set up a house that's going to be best suited for that person? How do we build neurodiverse or autistic-specific housing to grow 
the stock of houses around the country to help with the overall social problems we're having, but also create a far better environment for that person. And then secondly, how do we wrap support around that person so they can live the best life that they can possibly live? So, you know, it's not putting them in the house and forgetting about them and making sure that they have a roof and they're getting fed and whatnot. For us, it's about saying, right, well, how do we wrap... How do we wrap some employment support around them? How do we wrap some transition support around them? How do we wrap if they just want to go out and do vacational activities? How do we do that? And we're moving into a new environment with individualized funding slash enabling good lives where the family or the person will have the ability to decide who delivers that service. So separating out home ownership from a provider, and some really good providers out there, so I'm not even being critical, and I think it's important I say that I'm not being critical of the providers, but separating out home ownership to the provider allows a bit of certainty for that tenant, tenant for want of a better term, to decide who delivers that service for them as well. And just to be clear, Autism New Zealand doesn't want to get involved in delivering residential care. There's already a number of good providers out there. But it's about finding the right one for that person. If you get once the same as employment, if you get the right fit, that person's going to have a far better life than they would have beforehand. So there's that part of it. So we're looking to potentially fundraise um, to build some autism-specific and autism-benefiting properties for our community. And alongside that, we'd really like to see how we can help I guess, break a poverty cycle for some of our community because if you have access to government support, you can never own that particular property. So we're looking at other ways to help grow equity for our community. So then when we have that wraparound support for them, helps them get a job, helps them become self-sufficient and live the life they want to live, we empower them to live the lives that they want to live. Alongside that, we're growing equity, equity in inverted commas, outside of the property itself, but maybe out of their support funding because we can create more economies of scale over here. They can put a small amount into this equity pool that um, would grow and grow and grow and grow over time. And then after 10 years, they might be able to withdraw enough money to, 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 to be able to go and buy their own home. You know, so they've, they've been helped in employment. They're getting less reliant on government support and they grow equity and they can buy their own house. And then that property comes up and available for somebody else who needs it. So, for us, it's been it's a really, really been it's been a massive project to get to where we are now. Um, but we're really excited that the Autism Charitable Trust, which is an entity that sits alongside Autism New Zealand that I'm chief executive of, has put in our application to become a community housing provider only last couple of weeks. And if that's successful, confident it will be. Hopefully, fingers crossed. If that's successful, then we can start the ball rolling on looking not only to build some properties but get access to properties to be able to start delivering hopefully a higher level of advocacy service and wraparound support for our community to create the quality of life that that person wants. It's all about what that person wants. We talked about how employers um, perhaps aren't aware of how their systems and their processes um, limit the potential pool of potential workers that they could find. I'm curious about banks and insurers and all those people who manage or are the gatekeepers for home ownership and those sorts of things. Uh, is that an issue for people um, who you know have don't have a normal CV, if you like, or don't have a don't have a um, the sorts of things that um, you know the, the the wider community would just take for granted? Yes, it's an issue, and and the interesting thing I find in this space, and, and you know, touch wood, you know, I could lose my job tomorrow, and then I come with no income, but I'm far more likely to get. Um, in fact, I just refinanced a couple of weeks ago, which hurt, by the way, Bernard, it hurt. I'm, I wish I reflexed longer two years ago. However, I, I come along with a certain amount of risk because I could lose my job tomorrow. You could lose your job tomorrow. Anyone could lose their job tomorrow, right? If you're getting disability support funding, that's virtually with you for life. So the risk actually of having a autistic or disabled person coming to you and looking at a home ownership model with the help and support of organizations like ours and others, you would think there's less risk for a bank 
in that because that money is virtually guaranteed. So, you know, it's it's in law, it's in legislation. So, you know, that money is guaranteed for that person. It's far more guaranteed than me, you know, and, and, you know, hopefully I'm doing a good job and hopefully I'll last a bit longer than that. But you know what I mean. So, you know, if we get a group of people together and we're, and we're actually trying to move away from group homes, that's the other part of a home so that we're looking at as well because group homes aren't the ideal situation for our community. They, they really need their own space. So we're looking at potential little units within a larger environment, which we think could be really, really positive and create really positive individualized support for that person and really good outcomes. But so we, you know, we get a group together, whether it's funded through somebody we are able to fundraise or someone gifts us properties moving forward and the home's owned anyway. So we do it differently for that person because there's no need for a mortgage. So the money they're putting in, we would put a bit aside for them to grow their own wealth. Or if there's a property that they would be interested in purchasing as a group, then it could come under the Autism Charitable Trust umbrella because then we have access to other supports that they may not have. But, and then we would be, we are actually talking to a couple of banks around how we could best support our community in this and them to raise their own, whether it's debt, equity, whatever, however that works moving forward to actually start to create a bit of wealth for our community as well, which I think is one area that's lacking. I think we do some really good things collectively as a system and as a country for the disabled community, but there's certainly areas that we can improve on, and this is one of them. And I'm guessing, too, the employers themselves, uh, as the banks themselves as employers, mm-hmm. um, must have to think about it, uh, think about these issues from an employment relationship. So you'd think some of that would some of that would translate into a customer relationship as well. Well, we're getting, just back to employment quickly, and I did want to say this before we finished on that, um, was that we're getting more and more and more requests over the last, 12 to 18 months. We've actually set up a whole separate unit. So we have our supported employment program in Auckland and Wellington, and the two people that um, are involved in running that do an amazing, amazing job. But we actually were getting more requests from organisations around how do we set up a neurodiverse friendly workplace, and we weren't really geared for that. So we have, with the help of the work we've done with the police, we've been able to set up a sort of separate unit with one or two people, some who are autistic as well, around going in and educating um, organisations on how best to do that. And we can help any sort of end of the spectrum versus whether it's just coming in and doing a bit of an awareness training um, and a kickoff sort of presentation versus, as I said, what we've done with the police right through to managing the whole recruitment process and support afterwards. So we're geared for that now. We want to continue that. The challenge is, as always, in a challenging environment right now, is how do we change some of those referrals and interest from organisations into actually being customers of ours so we can continually support and fund our people here so then we can support the people in those roles so but the interest is there so sometimes it's just trying to trying to pull that trigger on on turning that interest into actual funding and then actual um, contracts to help people get into those jobs dane durgan the ceo of autism new zealand thank you very much for being on when the facts change thank you so much for having me it's much appreciated and thank you very much for the support we really appreciate it When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice.
A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.